Welcome to the Art and Science of Joy podcast. This podcast is all about inspiring people to live more joyfully. So if you're seeking a bit more joy in your own life or seeking to bring some more joy to the lives of others, then this podcast could well be for you. And welcome to episode 10 in the Quandrum Art of Joyful Living series. I'm Andrew Cannon, and I have the honor to be your host. In each episode, I'll be inviting our guests to share their words of wisdom on joyful living, whether that's in relation to personal growth, genuine belonging, positive impact, or simply having fun. And today I'm going to be talking with Katja Cahoon. Katja is a consumer insights professional turned psychotherapist. Her passion in life is to empower others to grow, change, and find meaning and joy. After a successful career in market research focused on understanding why people do what they do, she decided to utilize this learning and understanding to help people feel and perform better. Katja works mainly with executives and other highly accomplished professionals in Silicon Valley and helps clients with stress, burnout, anxiety, depression, and how the past impacts how they feel and act today. Katja is also a certified yoga teacher and a sports nutrition coach. Welcome, Katja. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Andrew, thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, you're more than welcome. You know, firstly, as someone myself who's worked in the insight space for many years, um, I'm for one fascinated to hear about your journey from consumer insights professional to psychotherapist. Uh, was the switch a long time in the making or did you have a specific epiphany? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I did have an epiphany of sorts. So I, mean, I was always fascinated by human beings and how they tick and how they make decisions and so on. And then, as I like to say, personal suffering really <laughs> brought about any change in my life. And it was the case here. I went uh, about uh, you know, 13 or 14 years ago, went through a very, very unpleasant divorce, started mm. therapy myself because I had anxiety and panic attacks. It really kind right. of threw me for a loop and had this wonderful therapist. And as I was working with her and she was really making a difference in my life, mm. I thought, oh my gosh, I think I can do that. This is right. sort of the next step for me in turning all that knowledge I already have about human beings because I did qualitative research based mm. on psychology and neuroscience. So I can turn that and actually help other people. So it was, I, I can't say it was a long time in the making, but it really was prompted by this experience. And then also the search for perhaps doing something a little bit more meaningful uh, with my life and in terms of helping others directly versus helping brands right. help, uh, you know, create better or sell better products. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see how that foundation in consumer psychology although very different in application, has the, the same roots, the same benefits in terms of understanding that you could then use that same knowledge to actually help people um, more directly than just helping brands, if I understand correctly. Absolutely. And then also I saw how, you know, I hear what I was, I was a high functioning, high performing professional running global studies and so on. And yet inside, I was really suffering. I had insomnia and panic attacks mm. and anxiety, but outside I had that mask. And that really also made me think there's gotta be other people like that. 
And then my background, having experienced that coming from a business background and then becoming a psychotherapist mm. would be really valuable to help professionals. And that's really what I do now. I work with these high performing professionals who also have a lot of mental health challenges, but sort of suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. Keep that mask up, right? As you said, um, don't want to let that down. I think that's true. What I'm learning is, you know, that experience you've had yourself on both sides. So you've had that experience of, gives you that empathy of being able to understand them both from that high performing professional perspective, but also from that, your own suffering, your own journey you talked about also gives you a way to help them in a way that somebody who hasn't been through either of those things could do. Absolutely. Right. Because there is a lot of, we, we compare a lot as human beings. Now here's an insight from, from neuroscience. We do that automatically. And very often for these people who seemingly have everything, right, they have a good career, often they financially quite well off. It can be very hard to even accept that they can be suffering Right. They're very often what I hear, well, it isn't so bad and I'm so lucky. Why am I feeling this bad? Right. And, and suffering is relative. It doesn't mm. matter. Money or, or a certain position in life is certainly helpful. It creates a certain amount of comfort and access to resources. Nonetheless, there can be just as much suffering based on whether it's childhood trauma or depression or life changes like a divorce mm. or job loss. Yeah, very much so. I mean, obviously, money gives you the possibility to cover that up in a way to put on these bandages of uh, a Louis Vuitton bag, or, you know, a new tie to, to make you feel better momentarily. Um, but that doesn't help at all to get to the root cause. It even prevents you maybe from getting to that root cause, because these luxuries sort of put you in this little bubble of feeling of you're okay it's not too bad I think you said right right yeah and of course it gives you access to let's say a spa or vacation or mm. you know private practice psychotherapy instead of long wait lists and community mental health so there are also real advantages in terms of healing and still again people suffer and there is no comparison right and, and people right. Well of deserve help as well, just as much as people who don't. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to change tack just a little bit now, not talk too much about what you changed from to two, but to talk about just the change in general, going from one career to another career, a big step, a big change. And I know there's many people out there who are thinking of a similar thing. You know, you get to the our age and you start thinking about purpose and meaning and it's you know why am I doing this should I be doing something else and some people want to really change to something completely different and so do you have any advice for these people who are thinking about making such a big switch based on your own experiences yeah I mean first of all trust your intuition if there is a calling for change really dive into that and trust that don't push that away because it is maybe telling you something that's very, very important. And if we push it away or tell ourselves, oh, it's not practical and I'm too old, it can mm. really lead to sort of a depressed mood. Uh, so that it's really important to honor that and to follow that calling, even if it's challenging. And I think that's sometimes what holds people back. And 
I certainly experienced that, right? I was very established in consumer insights. I was speaking at these big conferences. I had a name, I had a network. And then I started out and I was sort of the lowest (laughs) on the totem pole, right? I was suddenly an intern in a community mental health uh, clinic, Mm. a domestic violence shelter, right? Who, you know, was just sort of starting from scratch. And that can be very humbling and sometimes also frustrating. Mm. The other thing I would say, Andrew, is to get help, whether it's a a career coach or a professional coach or therapist or even just friends or or mentors that you trust, because it can be really scary and difficult. But when we have that help, the Mm. other another person who reflects back to us, hey, this is what I see, or have you tried that? It really helps us step out of the fear perspective more into courage and in our skills and resilience. Right. I think that's a great piece of advice because as you say, you know, that change, even if you have been successful, particularly if you've been successful in some field to let that go. And as you say, go back down to the the bottom, the lowest rung again. Um, And that takes courage. So having somebody, a mentor or a friend who's there giving you support, patting you on the back, pushing you forward gently, you know, in your moments of doubt, that can be really useful, I think, to make that transition. Super useful, right? And to remember that whenever you start out, it's tough, right? When I started Mm. in market research and consumer insights, you know, until you build that sort of expertise and position and confidence, it was tough too, right? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Follow your passion. And if you made it in one field or area, that's not by chance, right? All those mm. skills and tools and abilities will serve you in the next field. It's just you have to build some things from scratch. But it's yeah. important to remember that you're not starting completely from scratch because right. you bring that wisdom, that experience mm. in general. Right. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. You have a motto. Befriending your emotions is the most rational thing you can do, is the motto. But where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, it really, you know, in a way comes from my own journey of befriending my emotions. I, I grew up in this very intellectual family, very adventurous family. We moved to Australia when I was six. I didn't speak a word of English. And my parents were like, off you go to school, English speaking mm. school. It's a very adventurous, very intellectual. We discussed where the universe ends over lunch, you know, (laughs) you get the picture. I do. But I didn't get a lot of education or help around emotions. So in a way, I was actually quite stunted in that area. Mm. I didn't know how to manage my emotions. I really struggled with that for many, many years until I learned that, A, emotions are not our enemy, right? Purpose. We have them for a reason. Mm. Among other reasons, they serve an important communication function. And if I can learn to read that communication function and to respond to it appropriately, I have so much more power, so many more choice options, including the option to act very rationally and thoughtfully. Now, so working with our mm. emotions really is a very good investment, therefore very rational. Very rational to it. I think that's so true where I remember growing up and, you know, hearing phrases like, don't get so emotional. Right, right. right. As, as, yeah. as a, a negative thing, right? That was a negative thing back then, right? Don't be emotional. 
and it's like, well, it really goes back to Descartes, right? Who said, I think, therefore I am. And this idea that emotion is this bad thing that needs to be tamed and reason mm -hmm. reigns supreme. The challenge is that we have a emotions for a reason and they happen regardless of whether we want them or not, actually without emotion, we'd be incapable of making decisions. Mm. We, our emotional system is so much faster than our cognitive system. So if we can actually tap into that and know that they're there to help us, we can befriend them. We have, again, so much more power at our disposal than if we have to think about it tediously. Oh, definitely. I remember if we go back for a moment to our market research and insights history, I remember hearing the statistic once that, you know, the average person has 16,000 brand interactions a day. And you can imagine if you had to make each of those choices rationally, you know, you, you just wouldn't get out of the house in the morning, right? Let alone function. In your, in your daily lives with all of those interactions. That's just brands, add to your friends, your work, all these other things. If you're having to make rational decisions all the time, the brain would just break down, I imagine. Uh, completely, right? I mean, think about something as simple as crossing the street, right? If we had to sit there and determine, okay, is this the right moment? Versus just, okay, if a car is coming at high speed and I have a little bit of maybe just a tiny moment of apprehension, I know I don't even have to think about that I don't cross the street right now. Hmm. And so that's a very basic, simple example. But if we can learn to listen to our emotions, they really give us a lot of guidance. Now that uncomfortable feeling when interacting with someone, maybe pay attention to that. Or a little bit of anger when our boundary is violated, mm. is being violated. Hmm, maybe that shows us that we need to step back or speak up or whatever it might be. Right. So I'm wondering if, you know, some of the issues that we mentioned that you help people with in the beginning, you know, stress, burnout, anxiety, you know, is it part of the cause of that, this suppression of emotions that are then building a dam in a way, right? It just builds up and builds up and builds up and is suppressed until one point the person can't take it anymore something cracks and the whole dam bursts is that something you see when you discuss with your clients 100 percent. i mean let's take the case of panic attacks as a, mm. an extreme example but we can use other uh, you know um, kind of pictures as well uh, or presentations um so with panic attacks that really is your body saying enough I've communicated and you haven't listened. All right, now I'm really going to make you listen. Uh, because a panic attack, if you've ever had one, it gets your attention. Right. Uh, if you don't know what it is, people think it's a heart attack, they're dying. Mm. Even when you know what it is, it is very frightening. And inevitably, when I work with people with high anxiety, panic attacks, there really is A, a lack of insight about emotions, be really not knowing and not being able to read emotions. Mm. So they might have an emotion, but they just haven't learned to read them and then see that lack of what we call distress tolerance. So the inability to tolerate or deal with strong emotions or those emotions we often call negative, I call them unpleasant. Mm. Yeah, and I can imagine there's a lot of childhood root causes behind those things quite often it's not necessarily the work situation that has caused the 
problem itself. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, the catalyst that you know, right. causes the dam to break. But, you know, this has been built up in many people, I presume, from a, a very early age. Oh, absolutely. Right. You shared the example of don't be so emotional. Right. And, and we've all heard, most of us have heard variations thereof in our childhoods or just had it modeled by parents mm -hmm. and then certainly also by culture. Right. And then the work environment can often reinforce that depending on the kind of work environment. Right. I'd say consumer insights, perhaps when you're in qualitative, especially is a bit more open. <laughs> yeah, right. But overall, most work environments are not very emotion friendly. And then if you look at, like, let's say, finance or places like mm -hmm. that, I mean, really, you have to wear your mask and, and don't show any emotion. And, and certainly in some cases, you shouldn't, I say this carefully, right? We need to learn to consciously compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. But conscious compartmentalization is different than suppression. Yikes. Right? If I, like, let's say we're doing this podcast right now mm -hmm. and I, I'm making this up, had a fight with my husband before, right? In order to show up, I'm going to, consciously put that aside and then attend to it when mm -hmm. right and that's a conscious choice it's a conscious choice and it's a training right mm. it's different than pushing it away and saying i want to feel this and then never trying to never go back to right it. right under, under that carpet with all those other emotions that you swept under there right. uh, over the years so we've started off down this rabbit hole of emotional well-being and i'm going to take you a bit deeper down this rabbit hole We've done a fair bit of research into the subject, and obviously we've read a lot um, of research on this topic. And obviously emotional well-being is a very important ingredient when it comes to living joyfully. And our research tells us that it's an area where both those who are living joyfully and those who are not living joyfully or claim not to be living joyfully they're both doing an equal amount of work in this area. So if you ask them, how much are you working on your emotional well-being? They're both roughly say the same, right? Which is interesting. So there must be some barriers in a way preventing some people from actually improving their emotional well-being where other people are succeeding. And so I don't know where you can see any sort of capabilities or reasons why some people are able more easily to, to improve where for some people it's a hard slog. Mm, yeah. I don't know the exact nature, right. And what they, what kind of work they claim mm. they do, right. Cause that does matter a lot. So I would say there are a couple of factors that I can think about. Um, first of all, there is a little bit this tendency, especially in self-help circles, to focus only on the good, right? The growth mindset, focus mm. on the good, right? And that is emotional work, quote unquote. However, if you don't learn to deal with so-called negative or unpleasant emotions or familiarize or work with distress, sadness, disappointment, anger, mm. whatever... I don't know how helpful it is because then again, you're actually covering up and saying, no, no, I need to be focused on the positive. I need to be positive. Be positive, right? Right, right, right. It's <laughs> just another way to suppress what is. Um, so that's important. The other thing is we always have to look at are there older memory networks that are overriding positive intent? So let's say I have the intention, I'm going to you know, focus on gratitude and positivity but perhaps there is trauma in the background 
or perhaps an actual clinical depression that mm. kind of overrides that good in uh, intention, a very, you know, admirable intention. And that really requires perhaps a different way of working, let's say, with a psychotherapist or psychologist. Mm. And in some cases, med medication is helpful. Uh, when we look at ADHD, for example, or bipolar disorder, we know that medication plays a very important role and really can improve well-being, including emotional well-being. Yeah, I think, and that's that's a bit of the trouble, I suppose, with the self-help industry, if we look at that in terms of its definition is, is self-help. And, you know, if you just go onto YouTube and type emotional well-being, you know, I don't know how many millions of videos you're, you're going to get, but, you know, there's a lot of people offering help. And if it's purely up to you to try and navigate this maze, this smorgasbord of self-help, maybe you choose the wrong bits from the menu and or you You're choose playing. the right bits, but you don't know how to use them correctly. Exactly. And we can go back to consumer insights, right? Your framing, your frame of reference perhaps mm. makes you pick certain things over others and then sort of have a blind spot to, hey, maybe there is some older trauma or experiences in your life that would benefit from, let's say, working with a professional. And I do believe in, in coaches, for example, I, I actually collaborate a lot with professional mm. coaches. So there's a ton of value to that. Look, I, I post videos to YouTube because I think, you know, that inspiration, that help yeah. is 100% a role for it. It's just, if it becomes another tool to suppress, mm. that's a problem. Right, 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 right. And so for people to have that awareness of understanding what really is right for them based on where they are in their own emotional well-being journey um, is, is probably really crucial for that. So when we looked at the research a bit deeper and we dug into the emotional well-being we did find three areas in particular where those who you know claim they are living more joyfully tend to excel compared to those who aren't and those three areas were one which we talked about earlier managing your emotions number two having a belief in one's own ability to succeed was number two and number three was overcoming stress so those were the, sort of the top three distinguishing factors that would align with somebody saying, yes, I live joyfully. I know how to deal with my emotions. I know how to handle stress. And I, I believe in myself. Whereas the other people had doubts on those, those areas. So if we look at that first one and this managing your emotions, um, and I know some people struggle with this, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, but do you have any specific tips for people who feel that they're struggling to manage their emotions at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I want to say one thing, this one makes so much sense to me, because if we suppress one kind of emotion, the other's adult as well, right? It's a wholesale mm. deal. We can't just say, mm, I don't want to feel anger anymore. I don't just don't want to feel sad anymore. Right. It doesn't if we numb, it's general numbing. So that makes sense that people who instead of numbing, manage their emotions, befriend their emotions, whatever language you want to use, mm. that they also experience more joy. You know, other one of, I think the secret weapons really that we have is building a mindfulness and meditation practice mm. and really doing it in a, in a systematic way. So for example, John Kabat-Zinn does fantastic work. He created the mindfulness-based stress reduction training. His book, Full Catastrophe Living is wow. 
a life changer. <laughs> it love, really did change my life. I love the title. Love it. I, isn't it the best, right? It really just shows that's life. It's full catastrophe. Can we find joy in it? Yes, mm. we can. So mindfulness really often people think about it as, oh, you know, I'm just going to relax and sort of like a spa. And, mm. But at the very core, actually, mindfulness is the ability to be with what is, mm. to be present. And in order to feel joy, we have to be present because joy happens in the moment. Right. And, right. So if we're constantly right. nothing, pushing away, mm suppressing we're actually not present so a mindfulness practice if if developed over time and carefully and gently because we don't want to just dive in and you know go on a 10-day retreat silent retreat without yeah. any training that can actually mm. be dangerous dangerous yeah really dangerous huh? but doing it perhaps in a course or you know with a teacher or mm. using full catastrophe living as a as a blueprint it literally outlines how to develop a practice is really one of the best things you can do for yourself in that area. Yeah, I think that's important. I was talking to a lady called Rachel Cole, author of a, a book called Choose Happiness in one of my earlier podcasts. And, and she mentioned something I think which is very important that sometimes, you know, this joy, happiness um, is confused, you know, with unicorns and rainbows and and to say no you know it can be hard work right and it's it's okay to be angry when you're angry and not suppress that feel it but let it go don't hold on to it absolutely deal with it and what is the anger teaching me right Mm. i mean if we really this again goes back to mindfulness if i really pay attention to my anger mm, is there something in there i need to work on myself is there again an obstacle in my way or boundary violation that I need to attend to, right? What is this anger telling me? Let's get curious about it. Mm. Because the more I do, the more I can learn to manage it. Right, definitely. Let's move on to number two. Let's move on to self-doubt or self-belief. And, you know, I think most of us have moments of self-doubt in our lives, um, you know, multiple occasions, and that's fine. Um, But I think, you know, some people have it much more deeply than that, have this constant doubt of self of their abilities to succeed and I think that the damage there is often done in childhood Uh, so I suppose my question would be you know do you have any advice for parents or parents to be on how to give their children this self-belief in their abilities to succeed and what to avoid in you know creating self-doubt amongst children Yeah, great question. And I will preface that I'm not a child therapist, so I focus mostly on adults. Mm. I do have some thoughts. And one is to make your child feel their love no matter what. They can mess up and they will. And it's important to talk about that, right? This is the difference between you made a mistake and you are a mistake. You did Mm. something bad. You are bad. Uh, You are bad. You're a mistake. You're a bad child. All of that contributes to self-doubt versus, okay, you messed up here. Mm. I still love you. Let's figure out how we can clean this up. That is a very different approach. And the other thing goes back to really giving children a basic understanding of their emotions, of the two sides of their brain. Mm. That's what um, Dr. Dan Siegel does wonderful work in this area. He has a book called The Whole Brain Child. It's a very small paperback for any parent. I would say, get this book, make it your, you know, make it your Bible. Um, you know, that's, that's a great recommendation. It's a wonderful book. And it really talks about giving 
kids that skill set to be resilient, to work mm -hmm. with their emotions and not just their reason. Right? We want to develop both sides because we know the prefrontal cortex where reasoning, good decision-making and so happens, develops until we're about 24 years of age. <laughs> right. So, you know, this is why... In, in boys, probably a bit longer than girls from what I am. Maybe. I, I, I don't know about the data on that, <laughs> but certainly long enough for both genders, right? So that's why teenagers make bad decisions, right? And so we want to help them understand that the decision is bad, but they're not bad. Mm. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. And thank you for taking that curveball. I know it's not your professional sweet spot to do that. So let's bring you back to your sweet spot um, to work and professionals and to talk about tips for helping people overcome stress at work, because there's a lot of that. right? So do you have any sort of tips from what you've seen so far to help people can yeah, deal yeah. with stress? Gosh, yeah, there's, there's a lot. I mean, first of all, one of the key things is to get back in touch with your body. And that actually means with your emotions because our emotions are embodied. Mm -hmm. If I'm in touch with my body, I know when I feel burned out, when I feel stressed because my body is telling me, right? I might have symptoms, mm -hmm. whether it's an elevated heart rate or fatigue or exhaustion or feeling kind of just irritated, right? I can read that and I can respond to that by, for example, taking a break versus, okay, yet my, the next cup of coffee, right? Mm. Cup 10 or whatever it might right. be. Yeah. Or all right, push through an all nighter again, mm. right? And just overriding the signals of, of the body. And that's simple, but not easy. Huh? So that really is, is we live in a very disembodied society mm. We're all up here in our heads, right? So right. nothing from the neck down, right? For most very of us. Very true, very true. So reading our body signals is key. And the other thing is to really ask, okay, what's holding me back from taking time for me? Right? What stands in the mm. way? Because most people know intellectually what the right thing is. Enough vacation, enough time off, take a little self-care, right? Do, do, you know, take a bath, sit down and meditate, uh, time with the family, mm. go for a run. But they're not doing it often because they feel guilty or they feel to ha they have to work that way. No? They have to work right. to themselves to the bone. And that's a really good question to ask. What's standing in the way? What's holding you back? What mm. did you learn perhaps earlier in your life or even in your work environment that's saying, no, it's not okay to take a break? Yeah. And it's also you know, a very cultural thing I found. I remember when I worked a while back in London. Um, I hadn't worked in London for probably since the 80s. And when I moved to Finland, then I went back to London. And I found, you know, that they were working horrendous hours, you know, sort of 10, 12 hour days. But then when I was looking at it, boy, were they inefficient, you know, compared to the Finnish people who would work eight hours, but probably get just as much done in those eight hours. And I was sort of telling them after, they said, well, working to them. But, you know, maybe you change a bit your work practices. And all of a sudden, you're finding this hour in your day, or even half an hour or 15 minutes just by thinking about your actual work practices and especially now people work from home people have a lot more self-control a lot more self-responsibility to to manage that in a way and to give themselves permission to take that 15 minutes to have that bath um but it's okay right. even if it's two o'clock in the afternoon 
I think that's key, right? I mean, that's been well-established, the efficiency in work hours and so on, vacation time. And when you Mm. look at Germany or France or the Scandinavian countries, how much vacation they have and how productive they are. Um, We know that taking time off increases productivity. But when you work in this cultural context, it's harder to disengage, right? And I think that's where leaders really play an important role, right? If I'm the manager and I send emails at 10 p.m. Mm. or 5 a.m., I'm sending a signal versus right. I'm waiting uh, to you know, send it at office hours, right? So I think leadership really plays an important role there. And as well as vacation time, right? I look at the right. European countries that have, you know, I mean, when I worked for Audi in Germany, I got 30 days paid, right. 30 days paid from day one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Plus all the, you know, public holidays. So, you know, that's a very different story. Right. And it's probably not a very inefficient company, I imagine. <laughs> you know, I think they do okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. Um, I remember working way back for a American company. And, you know, we had a boss who used to always sort of come around the office sort of around 6 p.m.-ish, you know, to, giving people pressure, this feeling that, you know, they, they need to be there. But one of the my supervisors as a young person at the time told me that the trick of you know always keeping a spare jacket at work and putting that over your your chair when you went home and just before you go home get a fresh cup of coffee and put it on your desk um and then leave right so when the boss comes around he sees the jacket he sees the fresh cup of coffee i think oh you know andrew's a good worker probably just gone to the bathroom (laughs) yeah that's a good trick (laughs) But the whole concept of having to do that, right, that the boss is going to check up on you after 10 hours to see whether you're still there or not, you know, when they're only paying you for eight in the first place. Absolutely, right? That really goes back to changes on really on the systematic level, on the leadership level, mm. right? Why, why is everybody working so hard? Why, yeah. why is that? Why is it such a strong belief in, mm. in particular, U.S. culture? Right. But I think it's changing. You know, I speak to a lot of young people, even in America, and I feel this, this is changing. When One of the things we talk about is collaboration over competition and this mindset amongst young people that it's not all about me. It's not all about my success at the expense of everybody else. There is this more collaborative, this more we're in this together, you know, let's do things differently. So I think there's a change. I don't know if you sense that in Silicon Valley, it's maybe not the quickest change, but. Right, right. Yeah. And then you, you know, it, it, that's true. It's, it's tricky because you're also working with companies like Google and so on, where there's so much pressure Mm. and everybody around you is really brilliant and amazing. Right. I think Google gets something like 2 million applications a Mm. year and how many do they take? Right. So there's, a unique pressure, but people certainly crave it and want to work on it. Mm. And that's the start, right? And I think many more leaders are starting to understand the value of that, both in terms of productivity and creativity. I know, Katja, we could talk for this forever and we could go on and on. But before we finish, I just want to get us onto a slightly lighter subject of yoga and and the role that plays in your own life, as well as you, how you see that can help others also live more joyfully so just a a little minute on on the beauty of yoga yeah the beauty of yoga yoga for me i mean first of all it's great exercise because you work on strengths you work on flexibility which is always good 
But yoga really, like meditation, is a way to get back in touch with our body. And this alignment mm. of breathing and movement and the return to the present moment that's really emphasized in yoga is exactly what I've been talking about, learning to be present, working on that distress tolerance. Because sometimes in yoga, when we hold a difficult pose or we work on something new, we want to titrate between yeah, pushing ourselves just a little bit, but not too much to the point of injury. And that's mm. such a good metaphor for life, right? We want to get anywhere. We want to push ourselves a little bit. We want sure. to stretch a bit. We want to be a bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Anything worthwhile will have some discomfort, but we don't want to get injured emotionally, mm -hmm. physically, burnout-wise. And I feel yoga actually really teaches that and helps you embody that and practice that. Right. So it's an embodiment in the body, but also a connection between mind and body as well that you get from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely wonderful. Well, that is a great place for us to finish. And Katra, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. But thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on emotional well-being with our listeners. I'm sure they found it extremely useful to, to listen to you. Thank you so much, Katra. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It was great talking to you. Great questions. Really, really enjoyed it. Well, you're welcome. And we have to come back and have another session because we obviously left a lot on the table there. So <laughs> we'll do that. Absolutely. Wonder Anytime. <laughs> wonderful stuff, Katja. Thank you so much. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in today to this episode of the podcast. Thank you. You can find out more about Katja and her work on YouTube by searching for Katja Cahoon and on Instagram with your underscore change underscore champion and on linkedin again by searching for catcher e.cahoon i hope you feel inspired by my chat with catcher today to check in on your own emotional and mental well-being and i hope you tune in next week for the next episode of the art and science of joy podcast i'm excited to announce that next week we are going to be launching a new series in the podcast, which we are calling Joy Superpowers. Our research into joy shows that there are important ingredients when it comes to creating a joy-filled life. Our mission through this second series is to shine a light on these ingredients, these joy superpowers, by talking to experts, deep diving into the science, and otherwise exploring the art behind joyful living, so that you, our listeners, can be inspired to use these superpowers in your own life. In the first episode of the Joy Superpower series, I'll be talking with Chris Shembra about the superpower of gratitude. So please join us for that. I'm also pleased to announce that we've set up a new social media account, The Art and Science of Joy. And you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So please join us there, join the conversation, and help spread the joy.